Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. My guest this week is Jeremy Parson, a wine writer based here in Houston. With a PhD in Italian literature, Jeremy maintains an Italian food and wine blog titled Do Bianchi, while serving as a freelance writer for publications such as Wine and Spirits Magazine and Decanter. The blog's name, Do Bianchi, is a Venetian expression for two glasses of white wine. We found time amidst our quarantine to discuss the details of Italian sparkling wine, the difficulties of translating European recipes for American audiences, and the impact of COVID-19 on Lombardy. So we'll jump right in with Jeremy discussing the beginning of his blog, Dobianchi. I really started in 2006 when I still, back then I had an HTML-driven site that I would manually update, and I really started it to be a journal of my tasting notes. It was just a way of archiving my own tasting notes. But by 2007, uh, the wine blogging was starting to explode. And actually, Eric Asimov uh, found my blog uh, because he was interviewing me for a piece about Lambrusco for The Times. And it was really his encouragement about the blog. He had opened, he had started a blog at the New York Times. This is in at that, this is in 2007, and um, uh, he, it was really uh, partly his example and his encouragement that led me to open, you know, to start, you know, really expand my blog. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really cool that uh, Lambrusco was kind of the Kickstarter uh, in a lot of ways for your blog. I say that as a lover of Lambrusco uh, who constantly has to defend it. Um, because there are a lot of people that either don't know what Lambrusco is or associate Lambrusco with sugary sweet examples from the 70s. So would you kind of like build on that a little bit? Well, uh, one of the things that people don't realize is that, you know, our parents remember, you know, when you and I, I'm a bit older than you are. No, not by much, Jeremy. You've got a couple of years on me, maybe. (laughs) Um, I appreciate that. Um, we are in our parents' generation. Uh, Lambrusco was, you know, it was the Reunite on Ice uh, phenomenon. Uh, Americans were not big wine drinkers in the 1970s, um, not even really in the 1980s. I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Bartles and James wine coolers. Um, Remember Zima? Yeah, Zima, for sure. It was another, I I think that was a vodka-based Saw, oh, you know, sweet, drink, sparkling drink. Um, uh, Americans liked sweet beverages. To this day, there's still a lot of Americans. I mean, I'm sure you see that. You're originally, you know, you came to Texas, I know, from Boston. Um, I'm sure, you know, in Boston, not a ton of people drink Moscato Dasti every day. In Texas, people drink a lot of Moscato. Um Americans are accustomed to drinking, they like to drink sweet wine. That's changed over the last 20 years. But back in the 70s, Lambrusco was marketed to our parents' generation as a sweet, really low-alcohol wine that you drank as a cocktail. Um, And the bottom line is, even though there are some traditions of sweet Lambrusco in Italy, 
uh, and people in Italy do drink sweet Lambrusco, the sweet uh, Lambrusco uh, uh, trend was really created for the American market. Uh, just for us. In the last 20 years, uh, really the last 15 years, I'd say, to be more precise, uh, there's been a new wave of drier style Lambruscos. Uh, and, you know, we're talking the difference of a Lambrusco that has 35 grams of residual sugar per liter to Lambruscos that have more like 14 or, you know, around 14 to 16 grams of residual sugar. So there's still, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when you, even when you drink a, a brewed champagne, you're still drinking a lot of sugar that's been added to the wine. Um, and most, the style of Lambrusco that the Italians like to drink is generally what we would call a brute style. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so this movement towards drier Lambrusco, um, who in the U.S. was championing that? Was it, you know, importers? Um, was it buyers? Uh, where, where was this coming from? Well, there were two, two things happen in New York that I would point to. I was living in New York then, um, and two things happened in 2007. Um, one was that uh, a guy from, I believe he was from Modena, opened a restaurant in New York called Via Emilia. It's still there, actually. I mean, it's closed right now because of the crisis. But I ate there maybe two or three years ago. And he launched an, a, a wine list with 30 Lambruscos. And it was right at the time that Italian wine, you know, Babo, Joe Bastianich's Babo had been open since 1998, almost 10 years at that point. The Italian wine renaissance was in full force. And when uh, Via Emilia opened, uh, it, it was something new and exciting to write about. And it just, it was really exciting that uh, all of a sudden there were traditional style Lambruscos available for the first time. And of course, Lambrusco is such an accessible, everybody likes Lambrusco. You know, it's it's easy, it's very approachable, um, just like Chocoli, you know, like when I've been at your many Chocoli events. Every, who doesn't like Chocoli? You know, it's a fun wine. It's Yeah, yeah. Great with food, you know, great. It, it, it was... The Lambrusco moment was very much tied to the idea of regional Italian cuisine. It was very much tied to this is the renaissance of Italian wine in America. We want to know authentic Italian wine. And the, there, the other element and uh, was something that I was involved with directly was at the time I was the marketing director for a restaurant and importing group, and we brought in a Lambrusco we brought in Alicia Lini's wines. This is back in 2007 in New York. And um, I had become friends with Alicia, and her wines became immensely popular in New York City. And uh, they had never, they, there had been in New York previously, but never with any uh, visibility. And her wine, I'm very proud to say I was part of that. That was really my one of my first big campaigns as a marketing strategist. 
uh, her wines became very popular in um, in uh, New York uh, at the time. Lawrence Osborne, who uh, some may know as uh, most don't know him, remember him as a wine writer because he's written so many other books about world culture in the meantime. But at the time, he had just published a book called The Accidental Connoisseur, and he was doing a lot of wine writing, and he wrote a piece for Men's Vogue that became kind of a seminal piece for Lambrusco. Eric wrote, Eric wrote a great piece in The Times where Alicia's wine was also featured, and uh, Lawrence did this feature article about Alicia. And that was just kind of the moment. You know, she went on the Leonard Lope show on WNYC. You know, it just was a moment, a cultural moment when hmm. Lambrusco was happening. Oh, well, you and know, you know, I'd like to think that Lambrusco is still having its moment, that it's still happening. Um, you know, the ones that I'm being shown these days tend to be, you know, pet gnats. Uh, they undergo one fermentation. Those are the Lambruscos from like Selectio Natural or Scola Divino, kind of more uh, natural leaning importers. Um, but we've worked with a lot of, you know, tank method Lambruscos, um, like Pleto Chiarli, and then, you know, traditional method as well, like Cantina de la Volta. Um, Alicia's wines, uh, what method of fermentation was being used there? Um, well, uh, Alicia's dad, F- Fabio, is one of the best Lambrusco, you know, makers I've ever known. Um, he the wines. I, I know. You, I'm sure you've tasted those wines. They're very, very good. They make everything. They make tank method wines, and they also make a a, a classic method wine, a traditional method Lambrusco. Um, they weren't the first to do that. As a matter of fact, the way I found them was my boss at the time had sent me to Italy to look for new wines and I went to Emilia and I asked some of the some of the my favorite restaurateurs what their I knew there were classic method Lambruscos and I asked uh, a couple of restaurateurs to recommend their favorite classic method Lambruscos and that was how I found Alicia and there, at the time there were maybe like 10 producers that were making classic method, most of them kind of like Della Volta today. Della Volta also makes uh, classic method Chardonnay, you know, uh, wines that aspire to the, you know, I'm not going to say they resemble champagne, they aspire to the champagne model. And it, there are a handful of producers like Della Volta, who's a, who's a much more, much newer producer on the scene. Uh, it was mostly people who were making uh, classic method Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that were also making classic method uh, Lambrusco. Although to this day, my favorite Lambrusco is Tank Method. I mean, those are the wines that I turn to uh, when I want to drink, you know, when I'm having Tagliatelle al ragu and I want, when I'm having lasagne and I want, you know, just the classic pairing that reminds me. I, I lived for a, a, for about a year in Emilia Romagna, so I, I feel this deep connection to to that place. And gosh, I <clears throat> I lived in Emilia Romagna at the time. I was a graduate student in Italian, and I had a year long fellowship from UCLA to finish my dissertation. And that was probably two thousand. I'm sorry, two nineteen ninety six, ninety seven. I think. 
uh, I, I spent a, a year in Reggio Emilia. Okay, well, like, let's go back to the start. You're not Italian. You grew up in California, right? I, I, I was born in Chicago. My, my family moved to La Jolla, California my, uh, when I was about three years old. Uh, my father was a Freudian-trained psychoanalyst, and he was recruited by the San Diego Psychiatric Institute to uh, come to San Diego. And I grew up in San Diego. I went to La Jolla High. When I was in high school was the time that the peso uh, devalued, and a ton of Mexican families moved to my neighborhood, and they enrolled all their kids at Loya High, and I became friendly with a lot of Mexican kids. I learned how to speak Spanish on my own, and uh, recognized that I, I I enjoyed learning language, and I had the good fortune to meet someone who ended up being really influential in my life. Um, I was asked to take uh, Sir Roy Strong, who at the time was the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, uh, I was asked to take him to lunch in Tijuana because he wanted to go to, he had done a lecture at UCSD and he wanted to go to Tijuana. And so my mom said, you're not going to school today. I'm giving you the keys to the car. We're going to drive Sir Roy to Tijuana <laughs> to have lunch. That's crazy. Field and, trip you know, to TJ. <laughs> and and of course, I knew I knew my way around Tijuana really well because I had all these friends that, Back in the back in those days, before the first World Trade Center bombing, you could go across the border with no prop back and forth with no problem. So, for us, going to Mexico for dinner was no big deal. You know, you would go for dinner and then drive back home to San Diego. No, you know. So I, I spent a lot of time down there, and Saroy, who was you know I'd never met anybody like him before, he said he heard me speak Spanish. And he was impressed with that. And he essentially said to me, go to Italy, young man. He said, you should go to Italy and study Italian. And the honest to God truth is, by that time in my life, my father was not in the picture. And I was a little bit lost. Uh, I was a good student, but um, was on the edge of uh, being a troubled kid. Hmm. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and when a kind of authority figure said to me, young man, go to Italy, I said, I'll go. <laughs> and, you know, three years later, I was in a, I, in the, by the next year I was, uh, I started taking Italian at UCLA. I did well in Italian. And by my junior year, I was on my junior year abroad at uh, UCLA and that led to a fellowship in the graduate program, and it led to many years studying in Italy, which ultimately led to me filing my PhD, my doctoral thesis in 1997, and recognizing that I, my only career path at the time was to go teach Italian somewhere else in New York City. <laughs> I interviewed for a job at NYU, and I didn't get the job. I was really disappointed, and so I just moved to New York. Uh, uh, I was determined to spend my 30s in New York City, and um, it just happened. I had worked on a translation of a—you uh, uh, may have heard of Artusi, Pellegrino Artusi, the uh, 19th century Italian cookbook author. I'd worked on a team translation of his book, 
and they were looking for, they had just opened La Cucina Italiana, which is a historic food magazine in Italy. They had just opened an American office in New York, and they needed someone who could work for peanuts and translate recipes. <laughs> and so I commuted every day from Park Slope, Brooklyn, into the city. The, our offices were in the toy district, and um, that's where it all began. And then one day they said, hey, we need 300 words for the front of the book on Prosecco. And I really didn't know that much about Italian wine other than the fact that I enjoyed it. And, uh, but I did know a lot about Prosecco because I'd lived, I went to school in Padua, and I'd played music professionally in the area where they make Prosecco. And so instead of turning in a 300-word kind of teaser front-of-the-book piece, I turned in a 3,000-word feature article with photography and everything. And they said, would you like to be the wine writer for La Cucina Italiana? And I said, sure. And that was, you know, that was more than 20 years ago, but that's, uh, that's how it all got started. I was just the right place at the right time. That's crazy. And, you know, ultimately... I realized later that, you know, poetry didn't pay very well. <laughs> I studied medieval poetry and that I could carve out a living for myself, you know, by being a journal wine writer and a wine copywriter and ultimately, uh, you know, becoming a blogger for hire. You know, you mentioned that you translated a lot of recipes and cookbooks, but, you know, writing about cooking, uh, it's almost an entirely different language. Oh, yeah. And the way Americans approach cooking is very different than that of Europeans, whether it's Italy or France or Spain. Like, how do you translate some of that cultural vernacular? Because it's not as simple as just swapping this verb for that. Um, tonally, how do you do that? Well, one of, one of the... You bring up a really good point, and a lot of people... It doesn't occur to a lot of people... Italians have a totally different language for talking about cooking than we do. And even though uh, historically, you know, the first modern cookery book was published in Italy. The Italians were great recipe writers. And as early as the 15th century, we start to see, I've even worked, one of, you know, one of my more important publications was a translation of Maestro Martino's cookery book from uh, the mid 15th century, um, you know, they really created the standard for recipe writing early on, but they have a totally different approach to it. They never, they don't use uh, their their sense of quantities is much different than ours. They Italian recipes is very common to say, you know, add salt as needed, add liquid as needed, not you know, reserve one cup of uh, uh, of chicken stock to be added, you know. Yeah, I feel it, like our recipes are much more quantifiable. Oh yeah, like very rigid. You, you totally hit the nail on the head. Um, it's a huge problem when you translate uh, Italian recipes to uh, English language recipes because, in the overarching issue here, is that the Italian author of a recipe presumes you already know how to cook. You already know how to make a sofrito. You already uh, know how much, you know, how to salt the water to cook pasta. Um, remember, 
you know, my mom always tells the story when she got married in the 50s, she didn't know how to cook anything, literally, not even spaghetti. She always tells the story. And so the American, you know, if you go back to the American tradition of, of the joy of cooking, for example, um, I, I have, I collect cookbooks and I can show you uh, 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 a copy of the joy of cooking that has a recipe for how to cook squirrel. Wow. Um, our, 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 our cookery books are, not, I'm not going to say they're meant for survival, but they're kind of in the tradition of self-reliance. Hmm. They're meant to be like, here's everything you need to know to cook a squirrel. <laughs> um, uh, whereas Italian uh, um, cookery books are, you already know how to cook because everybody knows how to cook. Um, just make a sofrito, hmm. you know? I, 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 not every American knows what goes into a sofrito, for yeah. example. No, for sure. Uh, uh, it's funny you say that. One of the first cookbooks my parents gave me was Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. Yeah, yeah, great book. Yeah, it, it's truly an encyclopedic kind of book, you know? Uh, it, it truly does have everything in there. And Bittman was really one of the first to get me into cooking, you know? Uh, he had that video blog on the New York Times back in 08, 09, it was called The Minimalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that time. And I, when that book came out, it really, it kind of took the place of the joy of cooking. A lot of people don't remember that right around that time, um, Maria Guarnaschelli, uh, which is how she pronounces her last name, pub, pub was the editor of The New Joy of Cooking. It was this huge flop. Wow. And Mark Bittman's book became, kind of took the place of The Joy of Cooking Hmm. And uh, it's a great example of, wow, America wants to learn how to cook. Let's teach them how to cook. Um, that was such a big culture. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's such a, that was such a cultural turning point. Um, I remember hmm. that book so well. And I remember his blog was yeah. another thing that was, uh, uh, you know, people were blogging about food all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it was a really interesting time. Yeah, I mean, I love that blog so much. Um, you know, we've chatted about northern Italy a fair bit, uh, kind of focusing on sparkling wine like Prosecco and Lambrusco. Um, but there's another sparkling wine that's very near and dear to your heart from northern Italy, and that's Frangiacorta. So for listeners that aren't familiar, Frangiacorta is a DOCG in Lombardy. Uh, known for metodo classico or traditional method sparkling wine. It's predominantly made from Chardonnay and Pinot Nero. Um, I know that, you know, you are super passionate about those. So it, I think it'd be great if, you know, we dug into that topic a little bit. Um, I'd be happy to. And Franciacorta is something that's really, uh, it's just part of my life, uh, partly because my best friend, not just in Italy, but my best friend in the world, is a Franciacorta producer and lives in the heart of Franciacorta. And I'm sorry to say that uh, thing, the news from Franciacorta today is pretty grim. Um, uh, Franciacorta is located in Brescia province. Um, and if you've ever taken a train from Milan to Venice or driven a car from Milan to Venice, you've driven through... Uh, about 45 minutes east of Milan, you'll drive through Bergamo, and then another 30 minutes he heading east, you drive through Brescia. 
and Bergamo and Brescia are the epicenters of both cities, even though Bergamo is the true epicenter of the novel coronavirus crisis there. And today the numbers were particularly grim, um, even though there is, it was they had the highest number of, uh, of deaths uh, uh, today. Um, it was almost a thousand people died in Italy wow. today. I'm sorry to have report that, but I literally right before you and I got on this call, uh, Giovanni, my my best friend, you know, every day we check in hmm. when the um, Italian government publishes the official numbers, and uh, the news isn't good. Um, it's a really really tough time. Giovanni hmm. is currently you know, in isolation in his apartment in the middle of Franciacorta. Um, You know, he only goes out to, you know, I think he goes maybe once a week to the supermarket. But he's been on lockdown now for, gosh, more than three weeks. Because Lombardy locked down before uh, Brescia and Bergamo are in our big cities in Lombardy, uh, the same region, Milan is the capital of Lombardy, to give you some... You know, yeah. put it in context, and they were on lockdown even before the national lockdown. It sounds pretty terrifying, the news that I'm seeing, at least, about northern Italy. And I know that we're kind of lumping all of northern Italy together in this, uh, but if I remember correctly, COVID-19, you know, the hot spots are in western part of northern Italy, right? The area surrounding Milan. It started in Bergamo, right? Um, it 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 began in a town called Codogno, um, which is about it's in uh, Lodi province. Um, it's about uh, don't quote me on this. I'm about an hour hour and fifteen minutes south of Milan, um, and actually Milan wasn't so hard hit until much later, um, and Milan shut down really quickly, which was a miracle. Um, this, the two cities, again, the, the epicenter, the undeniable epicenter is Bergamo, and Brescia is also uh, the, where, where Franciacorta is located, is also is just right behind Bergamo in terms of the numbers and how overwhelmed the, hmm. the uh, uh, hospitals are there. Um, I'm so sorry. So not great news from Franciacorta today. I, 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 I hate to bring that up on your podcast, but no, that's, no, no. That's, that's something that's happening right now. Um, uh, about Franciacorta, I can tell you, um, in the 1960s, uh, um, uh, you, Franciacorta really has its origins in that it was a, the weekend spot for Milanese industrialists. Um, Franciacorta is part of Brescia province includes Lake Iseo, um, which is part of the Lake District and kind of like Como and Lake Maggiore and, uh, uh, Lake Iseo is another one of those, uh, weekend, you know, it's kind of like going to the Hamptons Hmm. from the city, um, on the weekend. And because there's abundant, uh, lake fish it's convenient because in another era, people on Friday nights ate fish for dinner, right? Catholics. So it was very fashionable to have a second home in a place like Franciacorta. Um, uh, and the fact that there was abundant fish 
made it even more appealing to a lot of people. I know that sounds like a funny uh, connection, but it's true. It's true. So the best, the best fish restaurant in Italy is not in, you know, there are great fish restaurants on the Ligurian coast, on the Tuscan coast, on the, ne- the Amalfitan coast, on the Adriatic coast, in Venice. If really, I can name 20 great fish restaurants. The number one fish restaurant in Italy is in Bergamo. It's in landlocked Bergamo because uh, people on the weekends want to, on Friday night, they want to eat fish. Uh, um, uh, it's called Da Vittorio. It's a fantastic, you know, it's like a three Michelin star restaurant. It's a really neat restaurant. Um, but in the early 1960s, um, a, a wealthy Italian industrialist named Franco Zigliani, who was, they'd always grown grapes in Franciacorta. Historically, even back to the Renaissance, Franciacorta is... Uh, has been a hub for um, uh, grape growing. As a matter of fact, Brescia uh, is kind of a trace of that, has the largest urban vineyard, still functioning urban vineyard in the world. There's a, If you go to Brescia, and I hope someday I get to take you there, Chris, um, there's a vineyard outside the castle of Brescia, and it's, it's, it's always been used as a, uh, for growing grapes, um, and it's testament to the fact that ever since the Renaissance, they grew a lot of grapes there, and they made a lot of wine there. One of the most famous manuals from the Renaissance on g- making wine is from Brescia. Um, uh, uh, there's a lot of history about uh, uh, in winemaking there. And in the 1960s, a guy named Franco Zigliani, not to be confused with the writer Franco Zigliani, who's another story, um, he decided he wanted to, you know, using champagne as his model, he wanted to make classic method Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And his first wines were from the very early 1960s. Um, it wasn't until um, the late 80s, or the 80s in general, I should say the early 80s, that a guy named Maurizio Zanella, um, he wasn't the only one, but... Um, it was really Maurizio Zanella at Cadel Bosco who really decided, you know, uh, 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 sparkling, classic method sparkling wine had become an officially sanctioned category for uh, uh, Franciacorta. And Maurizio Zanella, who came from an industrialist family, or actually his family was a shipping transportation magnet family, um, in order to, and he's told this story many times, he was a troubled kid, and in order to get him out of the city uh, and out of trouble, he'll be the first one to tell you that, his parents said, hey, we're going to set you up with a winery in uh, what would later become no- to be known as Franciacorta, and he, it was in the 80s that this idea, we're going to make not champagne-style wines, but classic method wines made using the Méthode Champenoise. You know, you can't call it that because it's not champagne, but we're going to make a high-end, luxury-style champagne-style wine. And that's when it really began. Uh, Today, um, I think there's just under 200 producers in Franciacorta, I, I don't quote me. Not all of them are growers. A lot of them are negociant wineries. Um, a lot of them are, I'm not going to call them hobby wineries, but a lot of them are really kind of local production uh, uh, 
But then there's a handful of, you know, I'll call the leaders, like Cadel Bosco is one of them. Um, Berlucci is another one. That's the one that the Zigliani family started, and the Zigliani family still uh, owns and makes the wines. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's Monterosa is one of the more famous ones. Um, uh, there, there's, uh, uh, you know, a handful of, uh, of wineries that have really emerged as the leaders there. Yeah. We, I've always enjoyed drinking Catabosco. Uh, you know, you gave me some killer pasta pairings for Lambrusco earlier, but what are some of the more classic pairings for Frangiacorta? Well, when you, when you're in Franciacorta, um, the, the, the pairing that they reach for is going to be lake fish. Um, that's the traditional pairing. And again, French court is not a very old app. It's a pretty young appellation. Um, its origins are 50 years old. It's, you know, it came into its own about 30, 40 years ago. Um, but when you, if you, if you and I were going to have dinner tonight at, uh, Dispensa Pane, Pane Vini, um, which is one of my favorite restaurants in Italy, we would be pairing our Franciacorta with um, uh, freshwater sardines that are traditionally air-dried in Franciacorta. We might have spaghetti tossed with uh, uh, um, uh, uh, fr- uh, freshwater air-dried sardines. Um, there's a number of types of uh, uh, whitefish. Uh, the perch is one of the fish that you find in the lakes. There, these are all these like very small fish that you know. The, the one of the interesting things about the Lake District in Italy is that the lake the lakes are very deep, and deep lakes are excellent for um, fish you're gonna uh, freshwater fish you're gonna eat. So um, we would be having you know. Different types of pickled whitefish, um, you know, air-dried uh, sardine, freshwater sardines, stuff like that. Um, there was a, uh, uh, he, unfortunately, he passed away uh, last year, um, but the guy who founded the Dispensa, which again is this fantastic, it's my favorite restaurant in Franciacorta, one of my favorite restaurants in Italy, um, he used to do these like freshwater fish mousses that were like almost like ice cream um that were that just i thought was one of the most brilliant pairings with uh with franciacorta they do drink uh, they do eat a lot of beef in franciacorta um and so it's not unusual francia uh, brescia um there's a town in brescia province called rovato which is part of the franciacorta appellation and it um was one of northern italy's main uh beef markets um, to this day, there's still a, a famous cattle market there, and so they eat a lot of beef. And so it's not it's not out of uh, it's not unusual for them to also pair, probably reaching for a Pinot Noir based Franciacorta as opposed. Even though most the uh, most of Franciacorta is Chardonnay focused, they do make excellent Pinot Noir focused wine, and it's not uncommon to be they make a type of um, braised beef that they call Manzo all'olio. And that's another traditional, another traditional pairing. Well, braised beef and bubbles sound like a pretty killer combo. So hopefully we can share a plate of some together. 
um, maybe with a glass of Cata Bosco whenever we all get through this. Well, we got to get you. We got to get you to Francia Corto, man. <laughs> soon, soon, hopefully. You know, it'll be something to look forward to when this is all over. A light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, I do have one last question for you. You know, you've been writing about wine since the early aughts and, uh, you know, you've seen a lot. Uh, the wine industry, especially Italian wine, has changed so much in that period of time. And I'm curious, of those changes, which ones have caught you most by surprise? Which ones have you appreciated the most? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, I've actually been writing, a wine, writing about wine since the late 1990s, and there's been a lot of changes in Italian wine. Um, you know, the first wave, I think, of the Italian Renaissance, wine Renaissance, was uh, when a couple of restaurateurs, notable restaurateurs in New York City in the late 90s, launched the first all-Italian wine lists in, in, in the city. And uh, you all of a sudden saw this shift at the time you know, high-end Italian wine, the only high-end Italian wine that people were interested in, in was sup the Super Tuscan category. In the late 1990s, that didn't go away, but you saw this shift towards Piedmont, for example, where all of a sudden Nebbiolo became uh, appealing to collectors and restaurateurs and people who wanted to drink high-end wines in, in Manhattan restaurants. Um, then... You know, in the years that followed, you and especially as the blogosphere, the Eno blogosphere, like I like to call it, started to take shape, you started to see this shift towards hyper local uh, grape varieties and traditions. Um, uh, you know, it, back when I started in Italian wine, who could tell you about a grape, uh, you know, like Bonarda, for example, or who could tell you? about a grape like Cesanese. And today you see uh, young wine professionals who seek out, they want hyper-local traditions. That's what really excites them and seems to really uh, uh, get them excited about, uh, you know, it really evokes authenticity for them. And I think that's the really interesting shift in the last 10 years, whereas you know, if we look at the arc of about 30 years in Italian wine in the United States, uh, for the first two decades, the interest in, Ita in Italian wines were always driven by the importers who, they brought the wines in, and if they were excited about it, they got people excited about it. But then you see this shift where, uh, thanks to the Eno blogosphere, thanks to social media, um, people, uh, they're not letting the importers drive their interest, and they're finding their own paths to arrive, you, a, a lot of times through communicating with Italians and following Italian uh, wine news through social media, but they find their own interests uh, that previously weren't on their radar. I mean, there's a couple of really good examples of that. I mean, 10 years ago, we saw this heightened interest in uh, Valtellina wines, um, uh, uh, in Italy, Valtellina wines and Nebbiolo grown in Valtellina has always been considered one of the great wines of Italy, but it wasn't until it got on people's radar through social media, partly driven directly by, you know, we all know how our Pepe got everybody to pay attention to uh, Mountain Nebbiolo. For example, Alto Piemonte, 
Upper Piedmont. That's another example where it wasn't the importers driving the interest in the wines. It was a desire to find something off the beaten track, something hyper-local, and something that really expressed authenticity in part because it was something that was entirely undiscovered up until that point. And I think that's, you know, Alto Piemonte is a really interesting uh, uh, example of that. Um, again, with you brought up uh, Chianti Classico and the new interest in subzones in Chianti Classico. That's such an interesting, it's a great example of how media, not commercial interests, has driven uh, the interest in wines. Americans and American sommeliers in particular love Again, hyper-local. They love to talk about expression of place, of terroir. And who knows if this great interest in subzones in Chianti Classico would have ever even come about if there weren't a legion of American wine professionals who said, I want more information. I want to know exactly where this was grown and why it's unique because of the place where it's grown. And I think that social media and the kind of excuse the pun, ripening of our wine culture here in the United States has created a dialectic where it's not just one-way traffic with an importer saying, hey, this is the Italian wine that you need to be interested in. It's wine professionals saying, hey, I read about this wine on a blog, on social media, or in my own contact with Italians and Italian winemakers, and I want you to source this wine for me. Or do you have a wine uh, that will fit this niche in my in my wine list or my portfolio, and it's a really interesting dialectic that is now working both ways. And to me, that's the most interesting shift and change, and very exciting for both us as wine lovers here in the United States, but also for winemakers who. 10, 20 years ago, were not on anybody's radar, and today they're some of the sexiest wines that you can find. Well, it's definitely a win for us as consumers to be able to have these really delicious wines to drink, especially now while we're all in quarantine. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Is there anything else you'd like to let people know before you get off the line? Well, uh, you know, my message, and thanks again, Chris, for thinking of me for this. I think it's great that you're, start, that you're launching this, and uh, I, I'm really, I was really excited to get to be part of it and interact with you like this. You're one of the wine professionals in Houston. We, you know, we were talking as we were prepping for this about how vibrant our wine community is, and you're one of those, you know, shining lights of this community, so... It's great. I, I think it's great you're doing this. I think it's great for our community, and I'm really excited to be, you know, to get to be part of it. Um, I, you know, not to end on a somber note, but I, I do want to put out there, you know, hey, stay home, stay safe, isolate, because I've been watching. You know, I'm as you know, I'm very attuned to what's happening on the ground in Italy, and. Um, we, we're heading in that direction right now. I hate to say that, and I hope I'm wrong, but all indicators show that we're heading in the same direction of Italy. And the only way we know how to beat this is by isolating, by social distancing and isolating. So I, you know, take it seriously. I know you are taking it seriously. 
um, and, uh, you know, spread the word. Uh, we need to, the only way we're going to beat this is by coming together and staying apart. No, for sure. I, you know, the, uh, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, don't forget Italian wine. You know, Italian wine, I mean, this has been such a tough year for European wine in general between the tariffs um, between the confusion of the tariffs, then as soon as the tariffs kind of came more into focus, uh, the coronavirus crisis happened. Um, it's been a really tough year for all, all European wine. France is also going through, you know, what's happened in Italy is starting to happen in France now. So don't forget Italian wine. You can't get coronavirus from drinking Italian wine. Uh, uh, I, there's some people who think you can, um, and Italian wine, you know, I know you're a lover of Italian wine. My life, my livelihood and my life, my best friends are, uh, Italian, part of Italian wine. And yeah. So, um, I mean, if people want to support Italian wine by maybe buying a bottle, um, what have you been drinking, you know, from your collection? What bottles of wine have you been opening? What Italian wine is getting you through this? We've been going all over the map. Last night we drank Movia at my house, um, which was a lot of fun. We drank uh, Scarpa uh, Barbera Dosti last night. Um, I just drank um, one of the wines I opened, you know, because we're eating at home every night. Um, I opened the um, uh, uh, one of the Gran Selezione Chiantis by Ricasoli that blew me away. It's their Cole di La bottling, which I was one of the best Chianti Classicos I've tasted in a long time. Really, really spectacular wine. That's been a highlight. Well, it sounds like you're still finding time to enjoy good wine, which is important. Um, thank you again for taking the time to chat with me. Can't tell you how appreciative I am. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, man. I'm really excited for your new podcast. And more than anything else, I cannot wait until you and I can sit down over a glass of great Franciacorta together, and we will make that happen when we get out of this crisis. Big thanks to Jeremy for taking the time to chat with me last week. You can find him online at dobianchi.com, and you can find By the Glass wherever you find podcasts, including Google, Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. We're also on Instagram at By the Glass Podcast. I say we, but this is a one-man operation, and since I don't have a whole lot of experience mixing and producing, any and all feedback would be greatly appreciated. Again, this is Chris Paldoyan asking you to keep washing your hands and drinking good wine, and I'll see you next week.